0: Good morning high-five, sorry. Good morning, Twitter. Wow, Friday. <laughs> Can you tell us Friday? Can you tell us Friday? I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. Now, listen here. Come close. Hold mm. I want you to hold your phone like hold it like that. Listen, pale people. Listen, Caucasians. We're going to talk about white people today, okay? we were wearing black. Because we're talking about white people today. You've been warned. M- moisturize your elbows. <laughs> They're looking a little ashy from where I'm standing. Get ready. Anyway, you're watching AM to DM. You're watching warned. AM
1: to <laughs> DM. Let's start with this tweet from our own Sachi Cole. Calling someone white will be considered a slur the day it also affects a white person's ability to do literally anything at
0: all. Mm. Have a nice day. Would that we could leave it with that. We Would that that could be the end of the, the show. show. <laughs> Go to brunch. Have a good talk. Anyway, that tweet from Saji Cole was inspired by the drama that played out yesterday on James Baldwin's birthday, by the way, Ooh. you assholes. After anonymous trolls dug up old tweets by Sarah Jong, a Verge reporter recently hired by the New York Times to join the paper's editorial board.
1: Yes, and some of those tweets that they dug up, mm-hmm. they read... Oh man, it's kind of sick how much I, how much joy I get out of being cruel to old white men, white people marking up the internet with their opinions like dogs pissing on fire hydrants, <laughs> and then just hashtag cancel white people.
0: Which, I mean, I- yeah.
1: Yeah, which, that's the reaction to that. Sarah Zhang though, has since released a statement in which she states, I engaged in what I thought of at the time as counter-trolling. While it was intended as satire, I deeply regret that I mimicked the language of my harassers. And the New York Times has released a statement of its own as well, kind of similar language.
0: Mm. And yeah, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about it. Now, look, of course, this is Twitter. If you're watching the show this morning, then you know good and well how these things play out. There's a lot of facetious arguments and bad takes. There are also people coming to joke uh, very keenly, and in this case, to Sarah's defense Mm -hmm. in a very smart, witty way. Here's a tweet from The shrillest interrupting my little Twitter hiatus to confess that I hacked Sarah Jong's Twitter and posted all the highly offensive tweets about how white people's idea of a quick snack is three tablespoons of mayonnaise spread over a manila envelope. I apologize unreservedly. Yeah, really? Unreservedly, I love <laughs> I, that.
1: I do love mayo and I do love manila envelopes, it's true. Others, <laughs> including Sarah's coworkers at The Verge, took a more earnest approach. Verge editor-in-chief Neeli Patel stated, we are proud of the work that Sarah Jong has done at The Verge, which reflects her brilliance and empathy for everyone around her. All of us stand by Sarah, digging for old, out-of-context tweets and bad faith to drum up outrage is bad for the news and society
0: at large. Society at large. So The Verge put out um, a statement that everyone needs to read, every writer, reader, every editor needs to read, um, because it's not just Sarah Jong, and I wanted to read just one sentence from it. Um, it's time other newsrooms learn to spot these hateful campaigns for what they are, attempts to discredit and undo the vital work of journalists who report on the most toxic communities on the internet. And that, friends, is the black ass bottom line, and why I'm not interested in engaging or pretending to engage a conversation about the news. Nuances of joking about white people. Is that racism? Is is this racially charged? Fuck that. You're wasting my time. This is a distraction. The people who were going after Sarah Jong were not even vaguely interested in in, in navigating critical race theory. They wanted to derail her and they wanted to derail the conversation and they wanted to distract from the work she and other people are doing. So fuck you. You're not wasting my time. My time is expensive. You can't afford it. (laughs) Amen. So... (laughs) Let's talk about bad faith attacks because, of course, they seem to be happening more and more. Deputy Global News Director at BuzzFeed and the man we turn to whenever we want to talk about terrible things on the Internet, which is, you know, once or twice a week. A lot
1: this week, it feels like. A lot lot this
0: week. (laughs) Ryan Broderick joins us now from London. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. Oh, <laughs> we've got more shit to talk about, friend. Okay, so let's start here. Uh, let's start with the New York Times response. Uh, was it helpful? Was it productive?
2: No, it was horrible. Uh, it, was, it was pretty much like the second worst thing you probably could have done in that situation. Um, I think we see all the time that when you even acknowledge these sort of attacks, and I'm going to call them attacks because that's what happened, um, you're giving more fuel to the people behind them. Mm. So the, you know, for an organization like the New York Times to stoop even low enough to acknowledge it is giving them a lot more power than they should be having in any regard. Like it's it's kind of crazy to think that um, a bunch of trolls can have an entire news organization respond to them. Like uh, it's, it's silly.
1: Yeah, and, and, and again, and it, and it makes them, it encourages them in a way, right? So Ryan, uh, it seems like these attacks, like we were just saying, are happening more and more. Why do you think that is?
2: Um, I mean, you, if you're on Twitter, you've probably seen people tweet similar things, but everything is Gamergate now. Um, in 2014, really quick backstory, uh, a bunch of trolls, uh, caused massive disruptions in the video game industry by organizing harassment campaigns. It worked. It's continued to work. It works because people don't really um know what to do in that situation and they cave or they acknowledge it the worst most recent example i think would be what happened to the director james gunn you know he comes from this like really transgressive filmmaking background he tweeted a lot of insane pretty horrible crap but he had acknowledged it he's written about it it's been out there Uh, they weaponized that disney freaked out kicked him out of uh, the director's chair for guardians 3 um it's it's going to keep happening I would love to be able to be like it's all over now. Like the, the New York Times navigated it perfectly, but they didn't. They added more fuel to the fire, and now we're stuck in this world where like if enough people get angry about something, we have to
0: talk about it for days, um, and it's you know it's a mess. Literally, our job. Um, Ryan, my question is this: It is going to keep happening, and I think part of what happens is uh, these trolls prey upon thoughtfulness. They, they prey upon, I think, people who have a predilection for being uh, naturally reflective and willing to go, oh, was that a good idea? Should we, you know, be more nuanced? So what, moving forward, are some best practices for dealing with these bad faith attacks?
2: I mean, like, a, a really good thing to keep in mind is that, like, these bad faith attacks don't really work if a company is genuinely committed to encouraging and supporting writers who are women or writers or people of color. Uh, If the New York times really wanted to sort of come to bat for their writers, they wouldn't have to be putting them in a position where they're going to start their job as an opinion writer. I feel like that's like a very weird detail that people like aren't talking about, which is that she's an opinion writer and she tweeted opinions and she's having to apologize for them before she even starts, which I think is crazy. Hmm. Like, you know, if you're going to support your writers, you have to support, them, right? Like, you know, uh, to, to hire a writer who's had opinions in the past, and then you want them to come to your news organization to write more opinions for you, it's sort of bizarre to start them off apologizing for them. Yeah. But I also think that these attacks work because commi- the commitment level is quite small. If you, if you really want to support people of color, women who are the main targets of these attacks. You have to know that they're going to come. You have to know what to do in that situation. And you have to know that if you engage with them in any way, it's just going to make them worse and worse. Mm. Um, I mean, they happen to all kinds of journalists, but right now this is a game and the people on the other side know it's a game but I don't think that older news organizations like the New York Times understand that it's a a video game for the people who are doing this.
1: Mm. It's a video game for the people that are doing this. Ryan, I wanted to bring up Quinn Norton because I've seen a lot of people equating what's happening with Sarah Jong to Quinn Norton earlier this year. Could you just speak a little bit about that and how this is different?
2: Yeah, sure. So it's, it's totally a false equivalency. Uh, Quinn Norton really briefly was going to be part of the New York Times op-ed section. And she was uh, fired basically when it came out that she had really intense ties to white nationalist and neo-Nazi trolls like Weave, uh, Andrew Ohrenheimer. So uh, a lot of people started tweeting like, well, it's good that they, you know, didn't fire her like they did Quinn Norton. You know, they really stepped up the game. And that's exactly what the people who are behind these campaigns want. They want us to start thinking that having genuine ties to actual, like she has friends who have gigantic swastika tattoos on their chest, Quinn Norton, and they want us to think that that's somehow similar, but opposite to someone who's joking that white people eat mayonnaise out of the jar, which is true. White people do do that. Um, Like (laughs) these are not similar things in any way. But if we start to treat them similarly, it starts to play exactly into what they want, which is this concept they call moving the Overton window, which is the far right techno babble for they want us to start thinking that we need to police the left equally to the right in ways that aren't equal at all. And so if we start playing into that, we jumble it up and we have conversations like this where we're talking about is it possible to be racist to white people, which no, it's not. Um, So
0: as long as we acknowledge that, we're playing exactly into their hand. Yep, that's it. Well, uh, Ryan, uh, my Caucasian coworker, my (laughs) pale king, thank you for joining me this morning. And Isaac, (laughs) he was here too. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Thanks so much, Ryan. Uh, You know, it does have me wondering, you know, is it time to delete tweets and stuff like that? There's a lot going on with this, and I'm sure we're going to be continuing to talk about it. For now, though, let's leave it with this tweet from TechCrunch reporter Anthony Ha. To state the obvious, racist tweets are bad, but jokes about white people are a good, proper, and even noble...
0: Use of this website. All right. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. A Japanese medical university lowered female student scores because it did not want too many women doctors.
1: Isabella Stegger tweeted, a woman who was rejected from Tokyo Medical University described her experience to HuffPost Japan and said there were questions that felt like sexual harassment in the test, including, and this is a quote, are you currently satisfied with your sex life? I just, like, was it's, it- This story is was wild. Was it
0: open-ended? Was this... it a multiple, like, what on earth? Well, BuzzFeed News reporter Cassie Cho joins us now from London as well to discuss the story, because it's wild. Cassie, good morning.
3: Hi, hi. Thank,
0: thank you for joining us. Um, we have been just talking about this story all morning because right. uh, the more we learn about it, the more you know shocked we are. So to start, why would a medical university want to decrease the number of women doctors?
3: Well, there was a shortage of doctors in the university hospital. So the university officials kind of thought that the way to solve this problem was to hire more male doctors because they believed that women doctors would inevitably, you know, get married and then have children and then drop out of the workforce. Um, And this was kind of especially true apparently in the surgical department where it was commonly accepted that three women, it takes three women to serve as one man. Apparently this was a saying there.
1: Wow, this was a saying. So do we know how widespread this practice was?
3: Um, so there's like a very long history of gender inequality in Japan, um, but Tokyo Medical University is the only university that has reportedly been like revealed to be doing this, although many people do believe that um, it is taking place um, in many universities and in many like job places where um, male candidates do get selected over female candidates. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I do want to say very quickly that this is just a formalized version of the misogyny that happens not just in Japan, all around the world, right? But we just hear half a specific, you know, uh, poll set. Uh, do we know more details about the test? Like Isaac was reading that insane question that one student uh, dealt with.
3: Uh, yeah, so the test was a, It was an entrance exam. It was uh, two stages. The first one was a written exam. And then um, the second part was an um, interview and then an exam and then another questionnaire. So that may have been where the question came up, although that's not very clear. Um, and then we also know that um, applicants had to pay forty to 60,000 yen to apply, which is around 300 to 500 USD. So a lot of women are quite upset that, you know, all this need to apply for a university that was very clearly gonna reject them.
0: Right. Expensive and rigged. Yeah, right?
1: Uh, So how did this story get out in the first place? Mm -hmm. And what's the reaction um, from Japanese media, Western media, what's it been?
3: Uh, so it was uh, the, a university source uh, named one leaked it to um, a Japanese paper and then but the university is apparently under uh, investigation for um, another bribery case for accepting bribes apparently from um, a high ranking education officials. so uh, kind of details of that kind of came out together um, and obviously like the reaction has been outrage everyone is furious um, especially in Japan they just uh, women actually gathered outside the university today to protest um, and And especially because Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has talked a lot about how he wants to promote gender equality, but obviously this is not really happening. Mm
0: -hmm. Not a good look. Um, I guess one last question. Uh, Has Tokyo Medical University said anything in response to the reporting?
3: Um, Yeah, so they've sort of responded. Um, They gave a statement to BuzzFeed Japan and they said that they neither confirmed or denied it. And they said they're currently um, conducting an internal investigation into the matter and that they will hold a press conference once they have the results. So that's all we know.
0: That's all we know. Well, very interested to see how this develops. Cassie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. All right, well listen, don't go away, because Jerry O'Connell is in
1: the studio, and later in the show, we have a very special white people-inspired
0: fire tweet. You're not so pale, visit. you need to wear sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back, friends. Okay, we're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News political reporter, Lisandra Villa. Good morning, Lisa.
4: Good morning, how are you guys? We're doing all We're right. We're doing
0: good, how are you doing? You feeling good this morning?
4: I'm feeling good, it's a little rainy here in D.C. That I, and I'm not loving it because I feel like I haven't seen the sun in forever, but otherwise I'm great.
1: All right, thoughts and prayers. Let's start with this tweet from Jim Acosta. I walked out of the end of that briefing because I am totally saddened by what just happened. Sarah Sanders was repeatedly given a chance to say the press is not the enemy and she wouldn't do it, shameful. Lisa, the White House briefing got really heated yesterday, so what happened and how did we get here?
4: So the backstory story is Jim Acosta, CNN reporter, has gotten a lot of harassment at Trump rallies in the past um, and, and CNN, as you know, like other outlets, has received personal attacks from the president. You know, he calls them fake news. Uh, Jim Acosta has really taken this in stride and um, sort of made it part of his brand, right? Like his Twitter bio is like, I believe in real news. Um, and it's sort of crazy that we're at the point that journalists have to be like, well, we're real news, you know, because that's just not normal. Um, um, but basically that that's the backstory. so then Ivanka Trump was asked yesterday whether she um believed that that uh, the press is is fake news and she said no she doesn't think so but there's been a large amount of unfair reporting toward her the president tweeted after that and then the the White House briefing followed Jim Acosta asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders to clarify That uh, the press is not fake news, but she really wouldn't quite go that far, Um, and so anyway, he ended up walking out, and it was a really heated exchange.
0: Yeah, yet another one. Here's the thing, and and I've got to say this, I have to say this. Jim Acosta, reporter for CNN, a network that continues even now to cover Trump rallies, which has been something that's been widely discussed and criticized and problematic you know, has decided to, you know, go head to head with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. My question is this, um, what are Jim Acosta and the White House trying to accomplish with this constant back and forth?
4: I mean, I really think CNN is just trying to do its job. Like I said, this isn't a normal media landscape. The president doesn't normally, the president of the United States doesn't normally go after individuals, um, reporters, or outlets. Um, So it's in a strange, it's a strange media landscape. Jim Acosta, like I said, has sort of built it into his his daily, into into his persona, Um, and but. In addition to this being Jim Acosta's brand, this is all the, also the White House's brand, right? They're always attacking the media, and that plays well with their base.
1: Yeah, and it, it's, it's hard not to see how kind of both sides right. win from these arguments, basically. So, Lisa, how should we, how should the viewing public uh, kind of digest these spats?
4: I think the main thing to take away from this is that it's not normal for a president to be uh, to be calling uh, reporters out for doing their job, right? Um, so you know, reporters shouldn't have to be on the defensive when they're trying to do their job. Um, so so it's really weird when reporters become part of the story, as Jim Acosta has, right? He's become really well known for pushing back against the White House. Um, but but the main takeaway I think is that this is a we should not lose sight of the fact that this is weird and unusual.
0: The moment you have to ask someone for respect, you've already entered a very dangerous dynamic. Well, we also wanted to talk about something else that happened uh, during the briefing yesterday. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed's Kevin Collier. Yesterday, the Trump administration put forth a good show that multiple agencies are committed to roles protecting election security, but there's still no one steering the ship. So Lisa, that doesn't sound so good. Uh, What is the White House saying about election security heading into November? And what is the White House actually doing?
4: Well, the White House is saying that it is taking election security seriously, Um, but Election day really isn't that far away. The midterms are coming right up, and there just isn't like a wholesale approach to election security. Um, so, so it, it was uh, stunning that yesterday there was no one who really stepped up to say, "Hey, I'm in charge. I'm overseeing everything." Um, where usually there's a point person at the White House on the National Security Council who's sort of overseeing how all of these different agencies with overlapping um, responsibilities are coordinated together, and, and there just doesn't seem to be that here. Um, so, so that's sort of the concern is that midterms are coming up and they say they're taking it seriously, but ooh, doesn't really seem like it.
1: Nobody's taking responsibility. Who, dare I ask, is usually in charge of this sort of thing? Like, who should be stepping up? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, so um, we spoke with uh, Senator Mark Warner, who is the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee yesterday, and his response to this was saying that there's normally a point person on the National Security Council, um, but beyond that, I, you know, I don't know that we've ever had to take this so seriously, seriously as a country before, so that's sort of where he was taking issue with this, was he was saying this is supposed to be a reassuring briefing, and it just wasn't at all.
0: God, I'm sorry. That's so depressing. Um, I guess one more question. Um, Is this like, is this like climate change, frankly, where it was like, yeah, there was a time where if we had taken the appropriate steps, we could have like turned things around. But now it's like, good luck, girl. Like, is it too late uh, for us to secure um, elections going at least into midterms?
4: I don't know, but I will point out that we are still learning a lot of things uh, from what happened in 2016, and we are already very far into 2018. Um, and if there's one thing that we've continued to hear besides that Russians interfered with our election, it's that they will continue trying to do this again. Um, so we've heard this for months and months and months, and, and we've known this. Um, so so I don't, I don't know that it's like climate change because I've, climate change goes back farther than that. Um, but uh, it's certainly, w- we've heard the warning signs. We've heard the, the yeah, that, made, that made me even more scared. Uh, it's like it's actually much yeah. more present and has way
1: <laughs> right. shorter history. Right. All right, well, That's Lisa, true. it's Friday. Thanks for scaring me this morning. <laughs> Good
0: luck, girl.
4: Thank you for having me. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Uh, listen,
1: up next, David is here and he's sitting down with the actor Jerry O'Connell. David Stay also tuned. has on a black shirt. He also has on a black t-shirt. Black oh, t-shirt boys are here. <gasps> back. That was delightful. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. We right. uh, we're going to dedicate these fire tweets though. We want to we want to start by 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 shouting it out. This is everybody we talked about it earlier in the show today. Uh, basically took over the timeline yesterday the story Dude. of Sarah Jong. Um, so today's fire tweets dedicated to white people.
0: This is for you. This is for you white people. This is people. for you white people. You ready to do it? Uh, let's go.
2: You know, I only shop at Whole
0: Foods. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Was that a very special white sound effect? Wow! <laughs> All right. They didn't tell us they were gonna do that. They did not tell I us they were gonna at do Memphis. that. That's
1: very okay. nice. Uh, it's a tweet from Saeed Jones. <laughs> Thank goodness white people haven't found my
0: tweets yet. Oh, man. Have they? Oh, update, they have. Mm. Um, so, so I've gotten some, I, one, I love the replies to this tweet. Your gifts are really funny. One of you said, uh, but what about Megan Trainor? Uh, so point of clarification. Megan Trainor, my queen, is not white. She's pale. It's not the same thing. It's mm. not the same thing. It's important. All right. Let's <laughs> keep it going. Just, I had to put that out there for my girl. This tweet comes from Famous Soup Muslim. All right.
2: Uh, for sure, dude. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: The control room was on one today. They are having a Friday. I don't even know what camera to look at anymore. (laughs) You tweeted, I, for one, love to discriminate against white people at the cafe I work in by charging them for soup when they order coffee. The owner has known about it for years, but won't discipline me because... He's afraid of being racist. Mm. I get it. I see the famous soup mops.
1: I've actually heard a follow up to that story. He's actually gotten a promotion. He's gotten a raise. <laughs> it's been really great. Here we go. Uh, radical. All right. <laughs> Pixelated Boat, you tweeted, I'm sick of seeing these attacks on whites. The problem isn't all white people. The problem is their leader. Jack White, who controls the other whites with hypnotic power of his shitty blues rock. Wow. It's true. It is true. So Jack- that,
0: that's what the Seven Nation Army was? Yes, yes. Jack White is actually... <laughs> White people. Yep. Alright. This creature. Tweet- I'm sorry, I'm so scared about this. Yeah, song. right! This tweet comes from AJ Please be a Mean Girls quote. Please be a Mean Girls quote. <laughs> uh, for sure, dude. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure that said at some point in Mean Girls. I think someone says that. All right, this tweet says, um, white people love certified pre-owned vehicles. Wait, do
1: y'all? Do y'all? Uh, you know what? That's just good finance, Saeed. That is just good finance. All right. You know me. King of good finance, absolutely.
2: <laughs> you know, I only shop at Whole Foods.
1: All, so right, all right, all right. Hannah VA, you tweeted, white Americans really can't criticize the social customs of other cultures because we sit on our own beds with shoes on. And, and that's
0: real. Disgust me. That's true. It, it just, y'all do many things that irritate and concern me, but that is. If I
1: even take my backpack off over the comforter and put it
0: on the bed, Alice just beats the shit out yes. of me with a shoe. as she <laughs> should. Uh, this tweet comes from Jocelyn Bilheimer. You know, I only shop at Whole Foods. It's just really fun. I wonder who did the voice. Like, who is that? <laughs> I think Dan, our it's it's, it's it's Ryan. Ryan. Oh, you've got a very Caucasian voice, Ryan. Congratulations on that. OK, this tweet is, um, every time a white guy parts his lips to give two cents on hip hop, Tupac retreats deeper into Cuba. Again, he does, he's never gonna come back, y'all keep acting like this. Just, just facts, <laughs> just facts. All right, you ready to do this? Oh, okay, this tweet of the day, I'm mm-hmm. so excited, It comes from Ina Joma Aloma, uh, we love her writing, she should come on the show. She should definitely be on the she show. Different. Okay, let's go. The funniest example of white fragility I have ever encountered was when I was explaining the concept of white fragility to a white man at his request. At his request. At his request. He asked for this, and he replied, but why does it have to be called white fragility? Why can't it just be called fragility? (laughs) Yeah, wrong response.
1: Wrong. Oh, I'm gonna
0: call it Ashy fragility. Mm, so, mm.
1: Yeah, you know. <laughs> why can't it be called? Just oh. hey, hey, can can you do this for me? Yeah. Can you do some work yeah. for me? And then I'm gonna to listen to mm-hmm. you and then just try and correct it. Yeah, so. girl, I hope you charged
0: him. Yeah. Right? Consultation. Absolutely send him an invoice. Okay, here's a CTA for y'all. Y'all don't know what that means. It's a call to action. <laughs> Take it to the timeline. Y'all it's Friday. We're just we're just we are saying the show through the by the skin of our teeth. Okay. <laughs> um what is the wildest? Whitest things you've ever had someone <laughs> say to you. Mm, Let us know nice. using that
1: hashtag #AMTDM. Up next, we're talking about Insecure season three.
0: Ha <laughs> ha! Lawrence <Payne> ain't coming back. Suffer! <laughs>
5: <laughs> Almost time for the season three premiere of Insecure, and the Lawrence Hive is losing their minds. Writer Brittany Danielle joins me now to talk about why actor Jay Ellis won't be returning as Lawrence to the show. Good morning, Brittany.
6: Good morning, how are you? I'm
5: well, so season three is just nine days away and season two ended with a bit of a heartbreaker, seeing Issa and Lawrence's relationship come to what seemed like an end. So why are people so surprised that Lawrence won't be in this next season?
6: Um, I'm really not sure <laughs> because Issa and Lawrence are definitely, well, it looks like they're definitely over from the close of season two. They had a, a great conversation. They were able to get closure. and And what's the next step after closure? Usually you move on, right? But I think one of the reasons fans were hoping Lawrence would be in season two is because even though he and Issa weren't together throughout that season, we were still able to see his character develop. We were still able to see him, you know, go through difficulties at work and try to find his footing again back in dating. Um, So they just might be missing the character.
5: Yeah, I feel like it's time for closure. And prior to announcing Lawrence wouldn't be returning, the cast teased us with this GQ group photo shoot, which included actor Jay Ellis. So why did Issa say she cut him out of the script?
6: Um, See, I don't... I've read the vulture quotes where this sort of emanated from. And I personally, (laughs) I might be a Lawrence truther, but I don't, I'm not totally sure that he's out, right? I think what they were saying was that he may not be as a prominent role. He may be out. Who knows what happens um, in the editing and writing room. I think they did leave the door open for the possibility for Lawrence to pop up, but they definitely closed the door on Laura uh, Lawrence and Issa's relationship. So I think, you know, I don't know why they did the shoot with him. Maybe because he was such a huge part of the show for the first two seasons. Um, and that gives fans hope that he'll be back. And to be honest, I think he might pop up.
5: I said, I wouldn't be mad if I saw him a little scene or two and Ty retweeted a post petitioning for actor Jay Ellis to return as Lawrence. The Lawrence Hive is being extra per usual. And Issa herself replied, wow, a sponsor post, though, like money was spent. So Brittany, tell me, what is the Lawrence Hive and why are they going so hard?
6: I have, I have no idea why they're going so hard, but fandoms are crazy, right? Like people, when they get really invested in a particular artist or a particular character, they get obsessed. So clearly the Lawrence Hive are comprised of people who you know, either relate to Lawrence, they sympathize with him, or they just enjoy seeing naked Jay Ellis on the show, which, hey, I'm not mad at that part. Um, but to, to start a petition that has almost 11,000 signatures to bring Lawrence back to the show. It's kind of crazy to me.
5: Yeah, I high to think the petition was just to see a little more of him on the screen naked, but we ain't mad at it. <laughs>
6: I'm Babs, not mad at it at all. No,
5: not at all. B. Babs, you tweeted, there is an overlap between guys who earnestly stand Killmonger and guys who earnestly stand Lawrence from
6: Insecure. So do you think there's an overlap here? Wow, uh, maybe I—I I never made that connection. Um, <laughs> but there, there possibly could be because Killmonger, you know, for all his, he was very handsome and you know, he had some revolutionary ideas, but his execution was extremely problematic. Um, his treatment of women in the film was problematic. So I think there, there might be some overlap between the fandoms. Um, I don't know what that says about them or says about us, but I think it's just, we're attracted to complicated, uh, problematic, handsome bad boys.
5: Yes, we all have a problematic fave. So Mm -hmm. what other insecure men would you like to see get more screen time this season?
6: Well, the good thing um, for The Lawrence Hive is that Daniel, I believe, will be playing a more prominent role on this particular season. When we left off on season two... He and Issa's relationship seemed to be in a tenuous place, but when she needed a place to stay, she went to his house. Right. So in this in this next season, I think we're going to see um, Daniel's kind of elevate maybe he'll take on some of the people from the Lawrence hive or maybe Daniel hive will get stronger people already like seeing him naked and he's handsome so there there's the automatic in right there um but I think they also said there's going to be a bunch of new characters um maybe Molly or Kelly or Issa will hopefully start dating somebody who's worth a damn this time around
5: Yes. Worth it. Yes. All right. So mm-hmm. I can't wait to see what hives come up in this new season. Brittany, thank you so either. much for joining me. Thanks Are, for having yes. me. Are you part of the Lawrence Hive? Tell us why you think he should or shouldn't be on the show using hashtag am to dm Up next, Saeed answers your questions about writing in Dear Ferocity.
0: Happy Friday, friends. Okay, it is time for dear dear ferocity, where I give you advice to questions you have direct messaged me on Twitter. So yesterday I had a very exciting writer landmark. Um, I sold the proposal for my memoir to Simon and Schuster in May of 2015, and yesterday I finished book edits. I sent it to my editor. <laughs> I'm so happy. It's been a long three years. So with that journey in mind, uh, today's advice is all about finishing projects. And I tweeted this out and immediately you all had so many questions. First one. How do I get back into the groove of writing uh, and other things after finishing a project and taking a break? Yes. Woo. I, I look forward to being in this phase because I still got to do copy edits and stuff. Um, this is what I would say. I, I think you get back into the groove when you're called to it, when you hear the music. Um, I, I think often, you know, we, we are hard on ourselves and we say, I should be writing. Why should you be writing? Because you feel like you're not a writer unless you're literally sitting at your desk writing or, or, or typing. I think you will get back into the rhythm when an idea or an inspiration calls to you in such a compelling way that there's just no other option. And I think trust that this break that you're taking is, is about catching your breath and paying attention to the world around you and bringing together all of those inspirations you are still a writer when you are not necessarily writing it's just who you are okay good luck uh, let's see do you have a designated group of people you allow to preview your work before it's finished. I am working on a project and I keep getting mixed reviews about whether I should publish it or make changes. How do you filter through all the feed- feedback while also trusting your instincts? Um, okay, this is different for, for everyone. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I'm very precious with my work. Um, with my memoir, with my prose writing, I only show it to the editor. It is, for me, it's like these are, this is like hundreds and hundreds of pages and drafts I've been writing for the last few years and I would prefer to only have like one main voice who's been with me the entire journey. So I just share it with him. Um, I occasionally talk to Isaac um, about the project, but like Isaac hasn't even seen pages uh, of my memoir. For poems, um, something that's a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more personal for me, and it's also frankly like a smaller project, I share that with friends. I often text screenshots of poems I'm working on uh, to poets like Denise Smith or Morgan Parker or Angel Nafis and, and, and get their thoughts. And often it, it's just like to remind myself that I'm in this with other people, that I have an entire generation of peers um, who are doing the same thing. So it's not so much for feedback, but to not feel alone. So I think if you feel overwhelmed, limit it. Limit the feedback um, because your instincts are in the end what's most important. This art is coming from you, okay? Um, I know this is supposed to be about finishing projects, but I do. But do you have any tips on starting one? I want to write a book, and the hardest thing right now is actually collecting my thoughts, deciding what direction I want to go on, writing them down. How do you start your projects? Okay, so this is how my memoir started. My mom passed away very suddenly in May of 2011. Um, and as I was going through the initial process of grief, Writing was the only thing I felt I could do well. I, I wasn't living very well. I wasn't good. I would forget to eat. I wasn't good at social. It was just so much was going on. Writing was the only thing I felt very competent in. So I just started writing. I knew eventually I wanted to write a book about my coming of age experience and then how that became a coming into grief experience. But I just had to write through it. I mean, the book was very nebulous and confusing and, and pages and pages. And, and so I was working on the book from 2011. Um, until 2015. By the time I sold the book in 2015, I had well over a hundred pages. Most of those pages have since been thrown out, okay? So I think you start the project by starting. Just write, just write and write and write. Collect material and over time something will coalesce. The most important ideas, the hot ideas, will remain and stay with you. But you can't wait for someone to shoot a gun to start running, okay? Um, and I think, that's it for today. All right, friends, that is our Dear Ferocity. As always, you can tweet me ideas or questions using the hashtag uh, DearFerocity, and you can DM me. I keep it cute. I keep it private. Uh, and we'll talk to you when I come back after my vacation after next week. All right, after the break, Isaac and I are going to read some of your tweets. It's the only thing standing between me and my weekend. Welcome back. All right, it's the end of today's show. Uh, we have a tweet here that I saw, and I'm excited we get to talk about it. It's from Pix Maven. Hello. Yes. Breaking news about goats. More, please. So let me see here. About 100 goats, and I know you have an update, right, Isaac? Mm-hmm. 100 mm-hmm. goats are on the loose in, right now in a neighborhood in Boise, Idaho. They are going house to house, eating everything in sight. Nobody has a clue where they came from. <laughs> When you
1: need, man, when you need, the internet <laughs> delivers
0: and oh offers. Oh, Look at that. Oh, wow. It brings me back to the llama days. Of, <laughs> oh, what was that? 2015? Things were so innocent in ah, the llama days. That
1: said, Joe Paris, an update uh, reported there. Party is over, kids. Get it? Loose goats have been cornered and loaded back onto a truck owned by We Rent Goats. Incredible. Imagine that life. We I'm imagine a goats. life where you and I run a company called We Rent Goats. That
0: doesn't seem beyond the pale. Like. We just rent goats
1: out to people. Goats get loose. We go and capture them.
0: I don't hate it. Also, We Rent Goats. Why, why are you renting goats? You Man, what's going on in Boise? Parties. Love a good goat party. True. true. So, <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. This tweet comes from Blasian FMA, a response to the Sarah Jong story situation phenomenon uh, regarding white people jokes. It's called punching up. I don't know why people don't understand this concept. Oh, right. Because people don't believe in the the dynamics of privilege. Anyway, it's not worth our time. I'm stressing over Beyonce in New Jersey in these scattered thunderstorms. I wish you a wonderful uh, on the road on the run to experience. Experience. Yeah, here's the thing, they do understand what's going on. They do understand punching up. They don't care. Right. That's what I mean when right. I say I just think this is a distraction. They know exactly what they're doing.
1: But that said, that's why we dedicate, like today's fire mm-hmm. tweets, like yes it's funny, yes it's mm-hmm. enjoyable, yes it's good mm-hmm. to be joking around, but at the same time we're doing that to show that these are examples example of non-hurtful things. Mm-hmm. There is a difference between joking, punching up, and fucking racism. And I I think to Saeed's point, many of the people that are instigating this are very aware of that.
0: And that's exactly what they're trying to do. Ryan Broderick makes such a good point. Mm -hmm. I just wanted that he was just like, it's a game. Mm -hmm. They understand. Mm -hmm. These trolls understand that this is essentially like a form of a video game. And Mm -hmm. they're playing like strategy. And then meanwhile, if you don't understand that they're approaching it like a game and you're trying to take it on, you're going to lose. You're going to keep losing. You're
1: going to lose. All right. A question from a queer mermaid about the White House press corps. Has it occurred to the press that they don't have to go to the briefings? I mean, Sanders lies to them every day anyway. Why not actually make a statement and not go? And that's tea,
0: that's tea. I ever I, Isaac knows because I rant about it every morning before the show everybody in that room owes Michelle Wolf an apology mm, mm. every single person including Jim Acosta let's not act like they like listen the press is not the enemy of the state that is the facetious argument it's destructive and dangerous however let's not pretend that there aren't people in media who are also benefiting from being able to grandstand against Sarah Huckabee standards because you could remove yourself from the narrative
1: you can remove yourself I'm gonna go on the other I end of that me if I, like, listen, mm-hmm. th- this is their goddamn job. Yep. And their job is to show up, and their job is to ask these questions. And their job is, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. some of them do it in a more theatrical way than mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. And some of them are definitely benefiting from mm-hmm. these spats. But that said, um, you know, I'd much rather have a press court in the White House than not have one. I'm going to say that. Cine mm-hmm. uh, Martinez has a pitch for Jerry O'Connell's next project. <laughs> if Jerry O'Connell had a podcast about what he sees and what he does in Calabasas, I'm in. I...
0: I don't have that it. man is living a good life. He is a very nice guy. He was tan. <laughs> was not really Oh, yeah. He was I looking did. sharp. White people noticed tans. He was spending uh, <laughs> some time in the sun. <laughs> he just was so nice. He came in and he insisted on shaking our hands. And we're like, you're, you're talking to today. He's like, nope. You don't <laughs> get these hands. You don't get these hands. So he's get really nice he a really nice
1: guy. Very nice smile. When I was growing up, when I was like a yeah. teenager, uh, that's uh people used to always
0: say, hey, you look like Q from Sliders." And I see it. You should tweet a picture of it later. All right. You tweet a picture of it later. Right. And, you know, listen, the title of that show was messed up. And I'm glad he was willing to own that because... Mm-hmm. I know what a real man looks like and you're looking at two of them right here. Okay, thank you to <laughs> black our- Black T-shirt guests. boys! I'm sorry. <laughs> we love wearing our black t-shirts on Fridays. Okay, thank you to our guests, Jerry O'Connell, Ryan Broderick, Cassie Cho, Lisandra Villa, David Mack, Chantal and Brittany Daniel, thank you all. Absolutely, next week we have Danielle Brooks, Natasha
1: Leone, Guy Branham, John David Washington, and Laura Harrier. Uh, it's gonna be an awesome week. I'm coming back on Monday. This guy's going on vacation, but Monday, me and Stephanie McNeil will be here. We'll see you there, 10 a.m. Enjoy your weekend. See you on the timeline, darlings. <laughs>
0: Act white. <laughs>